Turn with me to Acts chapter 25 this morning. Acts chapter 25, we'll be looking at the first 22 verses of that chapter as we continue our study in the book of Acts. Before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, Lord, we pray that you would use it to convict our hearts of sin. We are always seeking our own paths, our own wisdom, and it always leads to destruction. And so, Lord, we pray that you would write our paths this morning, that you would give us your wisdom as we go to your word, that you would use it to change us, that we would better serve you, that we would know you more. And so in your name we pray. Amen. So keep your finger there in Acts 25, and I'm going to turn, have you turn to Matthew chapter 10 quickly to introduce our text this morning. Matthew chapter 10. As there are some parallels here that I think are good for us to bring out. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 16. And this is when our Lord Jesus was sending out the disciples into the region to preach the gospel. And this is what he has to say to them, or a portion of what he had to say to them. He said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and to the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so... Does this not sound exactly like what Paul was going through? He's being imprisoned in a Roman jail for crimes that he did not commit. His accusers are his Jewish brothers and fathers. They hate him because of the God that he serves. He's been drugged now before governors and kings for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And he has defended himself well. Though at this point in the story, it's starting to matter less and less. He's kind of moving toward the end of the story in his own life. Yet, what does this, or what does Jesus tell us about these sorts of situations? He says in Matthew 10, don't worry. In those situations, I will give you the words to say. To be innocent as doves, to be wise as serpents. It is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks through you. Very comforting words. Again, we find Paul in a continuing difficult situation from which he will ultimately again find no escape from. But for now, he's faithfully preaching the good news. 
to all who will hear, even to his persecutors, to governors and kings, as we will see in our text today, to anyone and to everyone who will hear. This week and next will complete Paul's defenses, uh, the defenses that he gives for these crimes. And, and though at times it has seemed a bit redundant, I think, it's, it's helpful for us to measure our own situations in light of the truth that we find in these these uh, chapters. We deal with some degree of rejection to our faith all the time, though we probably aren't dealing with out-and-out persecution, you know, like Paul's dealing with here. It is how we react and interact in those situations that we show the world what we are really about. It is, is it self-preservation or is it the glory of God? In our text today, Paul appeals ultimately or to the ultimate human authority at the time. And he sets in motion the end of his story. For us, I think it's helpful to see that the institutions, the institutions that God uses to accomplish his will, even though they are filled with evil people. And so as we look at this text, I want to see that in three parts, the favors against Paul, Paul before Festus, and then the arrival of Agrippa. And so with that, let's look at the text. Acts chapter 25, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 25, starting at verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush, planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him and they, that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on the charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, do not seek to escape to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had all conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and he. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat 
on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss at how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear him myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So last week, just as a, just to catch everyone up, last week we looked at the man Felix and this time, uh, and his time as the governor of Judea. He is now being replaced by one named Portius Festus, or as the text just refers to him as Festus. All, by all historical accounts, Festus was a better ruler than Felix was, though his rule was short due to his own death interrupting his rule. Uh, here he is mentioned by, with his sister Bernice. They had another sister that we've already read about, actually, Drusilla, who was the wife of Felix. Festus and Bernice shared a relationship that likely went beyond brother and sister, and there were many rumors circulating about that in the Jewish province. And so you can kind of get the the feel going on about Festus and the general populace. Nonetheless, he was generally considered in higher regard than his predecessor. One interesting thing uh, is the mention of Agrippa II here. This is... uh, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, Agrippa I, or Herod Agrippa I, died a grisly death. That is actually detailed in the pages of this book, if you'll remember, when he was struck down by the Lord after the murder of the Apostle James. Remember, he was eaten by worms, is what the text tells us. Um, Though Rome, at this time, took back exclusive rule of the province after Agrippa I died, Agrippa II is still here called the King of the Jews. May have been kind of a ceremonial role there. This Herodian dynasty is featured prominently in the New Testament Gospels and in Acts, as we read about this man named Herod a lot. It's not all the same guy. There's a lot of different Herods. Herod the Great is the one that sought to kill Jesus, and he did so by killing an unknown number of babies hoping that Jesus was one of them. Uh, Herod Antipas was the one that John the Baptist, or that beheaded John the Baptist and additionally played the coward role in Jesus' own trial. And then Agrippa I, obviously the one eaten by worms. And now we have Agrippa II, who will actually become the last of a long line of Herods. And a very uh, long and storied line. We'll look at Agrippa and Paul next week as he, as Agrippa wants to hear Paul's defense. Well, he's going to get it and then some. Uh, and I think it um, will work very well, actually, the Sunday before Christmas. And so but that brings us to the first point, the favors that are against Paul. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. 
So just like in chapter 23, we have this group of Jews that want to ambush Paul and have him killed while he is on the way somewhere. You remember in chapter 23, the group said that they would not eat until they had killed Paul. Um, at this point, if they were staying true to their word, they would all be dead because this is like two years later. Uh, so that's probably not the same people. I'm guessing that they probably caved on their oath and ate something. Uh, but another group rises up, or maybe it's some of the same people. We don't know. But they want to kill Paul as well, using the same tactic as before. We're going to wait till he gets out on the road, and then we're going to kill him in broad daylight. Um, and that's their plan. But this time, notice, they're going through the proper channels. They're asking the governor himself, which is probably the smart thing to do, I guess, if you're wanting to not have the Romans against you. So put yourself in his shoes, this governor, Festus. You know that Felix, your predecessor, had a very rough go at it as far as the Jewish people are concerned. He was horrible to the Jews, was known for slaughtering them by the hundreds and hundreds. You're in a new position and you want to impress Caesar in Rome. Judea, notoriously a very difficult province for Rome. And so you're willing to probably do your subjects a bit of a favor in order to keep the peace. Making yourself look good in the process. It all makes sense. This is pretty much how government still runs, is it not? You have a bunch of people doing favors for each other while their subjects sit idly by and kind of hope for the best. The whole stage is really set against Paul at this point. There isn't a whole lot that he can do. At least... He may have been getting someplace with Felix. You know, he had these conversations with Felix, even though he was uh, sharing to him about his own destruction if he didn't clean his act up. But now the cards have really stacked against him. The only thing is that he has this promise from the Lord, you know, that he's actually going to go to Rome. And there's something there for us, I think. Consider the promises that we have in Christ Jesus today. He will never leave us or forsake us. His word will always accomplish the task that it sets out to do. He can, we can never be separated from His love. He is coming again to bring His people home. This is just a small handful of the promises that we have in our Lord Christ. And if you consider these promises in the midst of life's difficulties, it helps gain perspective, just like Paul had here. He knew that what did the Lord Jesus tell him? You're going to Rome. Was Paul worried at all about these behind-the-back deals that were going on with the Jews and Festus? No, because Jesus keeps his promises. And I think it's an important thing for us to be told all the time. His promises aren't for our comfort. They're not for our earthly well-being necessarily, as we're going to read throughout the rest of this book. Paul doesn't necessarily have well-being. He has some difficulty on the road to Rome. We might have those things. We might have comfort. We might have well-being. But they're temporary. They don't last. Because people are sinful. Because death is always one step behind us. Every time. We will have heartache. We will have trial. And we'll have unsettled times in this earth. That's just the facts of the place that we live. It could be that those times last for a few days. A whole season. Or the majority of our lives. We don't know. Regardless of the duration of this present life and its trials, the promise of God and Jesus Christ 
are forever and they last for all eternity. And it should be continually obvious that Paul lived as a man that was driven by this truth, the truth of the promises of God. How do they drive us? Do they change the way that we live in this sinful world full of death? Are we easily overcome by the difficulties of this world? Or do we rest upon the promises in Christ? If our trust is in ourselves, we have despair. We have nothing else but despair. And if we trust in Christ, we have hope. And that's all we can have. That brings me to the next point. Paul before Festus. So Festus makes it to Caesarea. He's been kind of smoozing with the elders of the Jews there for a while being wined and dined in Jerusalem. Now he's back in Caesarea, and he calls Paul before him, and Paul gives his defense. Look with me at verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Fairly straightforward here. The truth doesn't need a lot of frills. The truth can always be recognized because it stands up very easily to cross-examination. Paul doesn't have a problem answering these questions because he's not wrong. He was ready to be examined thoroughly. He had no problem with that, but he's not going to get his chance. Verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Of course he doesn't. Festus proves to be corrupt because he wants to to help the Jews by aiding their plan to kill Paul. This time he wouldn't have Roman protection on the road. In fact, Roman, the Rome would be turning a blind eye to Paul's death if it were to just accidentally take place as he was on his way back to Jerusalem. Paul was left with very few options at this point. It obviously would have been better for him to have gotten a fair trial that day in Caesarea. It should have been an open and shut case to be acquitted than to continue his ministry to the world. But for whatever reason, the Lord had other plans for him. And so Paul, being a Roman citizen, resorts to his last option, verses 10 through 12. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, said to Caesar, he have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Paul appeals to the highest court of the land where there would be a final decision, and that decision would ultimately mean one of two things, Paul's freedom or Paul's death. It would mean that he would begin this very purposeful trip to Rome where he would eventually die at the hands of Nero. doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to get a fair trial either because government is corrupt and because it's contained sinners. But that does bring up a really good point for us. God ordains the rulers of the land, puts them into the place for reasons that he chooses to do so. Paul, knowing of this God-ordained procedure, follows the laws accordingly. He could have joined one of those rebel groups, right? There's a lot of these 
rebel kind of factions there in uh, Judea. Like the Zealots, for instance. He could have actively fought for his freedom if he had chosen to. Instead, he planned on using God-ordained means to accomplish the purposes of the plans of God. A great example of this is Christian teachers. Think of our own laws for teachers and for Christian teachers like myself and several in this room. It would be easy to say, well, I know what the state of Kentucky says. They say I can't talk about Christ, but I'm going to preach Christ anyway, and I'm not going to obey their laws. And I could maybe look like a hero in doing that, but really I would just be an idiot because I would be endangering my family's well-being, my own freedom, my witness to the students and to the faculty there, all in the name of, I think these laws are bad. Instead, I respect the law of the land. I don't don't preach my faith to the students. Instead, I give a constant Christian example. I answer questions when they arise, and they do, inevitably, all the time, every day. And I talk about Christ when I'm given opportunity. But I don't preach, I don't break the law. If we had our way, I'm sure many things we would change as Christians. We would change many things that have to do with government. But we don't have our way. For whatever reason, the Lord sees fit to use corrupt men and women to accomplish His purposes. He always has. He always will. This side of glory. He doesn't go along behind them fixing things. That's not how the Lord works. It's not that men are messing things up and He's kind of sweeping up things behind them. He is the hand that moves everything along the way. He is the grand orchestrator of every thought and of every action. Nothing escapes him because nothing happens without his direct hand in it. We may not like that idea, but it is the plain teaching of Scripture. And even when it comes to the minute details of every single situation, the Creator is right there. Whether it be the details of Paul's trials and his imprisonment and the goings on in his life that we're going to continue reading here, the demise of an entire empire like Rome, which eventually happened. God's hand was in it. To the very simple details like the ingredients of the food that we're going to have for lunch today. God's hand is in it and through it. How we respond to that truth makes us who we are. We are left with two options then. We trust the Creator, the Grand Designer, or We constantly fight against Him. Those are our options. Whether we rest in Him or fight against Him, He is the one that holds us up in both situations. Even the unbeliever that seeks to slap God in the face has to sit in His lap to do so. That brings me to the third point, the arrival of Agrippa. King Agrippa and Bernice ride to town for the purpose of greeting Festus. We read that there. In verse 13, that they greet Festus, the original language suggests more than just a hello. They're not coming just to say hi to a friend, but this is kind of a formal welcome to office. They're paying their respects. It's a better way to think about it. Agrippa wasn't the Roman representative there necessarily, but he definitely had his hands in Roman dealings. And 
he would be no stranger to the ways of Rome or the ways of the Jews, for that matter. Later, when Rome and Judea went to war in AD 66, Agrippa would side with Rome, saving himself from destruction, and his Jewish subjects would be the one that would suffer. So Festus goes through some details to tell him about Paul's story, and Agrippa wishes to see him. He says, I would like to hear the man myself. And so Festus says, tomorrow you will hear him. That's what we'll be talking about next week. I can't help be struck by the idea that King Agrippa rides into town to pay his respects to the Roman governor, but in prison sits one who represents the true king of kings and the true lord of lords. All the power and authority of Festus and Agrippa and all the other Herods and all the other people that we're going to read about is derived from the one who will be born in a cattle stall and placed in a feeding trough. As Todd read this morning, Pilate knew that. Pilate was face to face with his creator. And Jesus told him, you have no authority except that which has been given to you. These Roman officials had lives of wealth and privilege, but the Lord Jesus gave all of that up to save his people from their sins. While the world around them bowed to names like Tiberius and Caligula and others of the day, Jesus came into the world a baby born to poor folks and died hanging on a Roman cross. Unlike Tiberius and Caligula and Felix and Festus and Agrippa, Jesus is no longer dead, brothers and sisters. He is alive. Paul appeals appeals to Caesar here, but his hope wasn't in Caesar at all, and neither is yours. And Paul's hope wasn't in princes or in sons of rulers, like we read from Psalm 146 this morning, but his hope was in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is right now and who was then seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and preparing a place for you and I. So in conclusion, what do we do with that? Brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord. Our hope is not in flesh and blood, in rulers and authorities, but in the one who can raise the dead to life. And of that fact, we are all proof. Trust in the Lord. Place your hope in him. Tell the world of that hope that you have. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, as we read this word, we realize that we quickly are ones that do not trust in you, that we seek other avenues, we seek our own wisdom, we seek our own words. Even when we have your words here before us, we would easily call them wrong if we thought we had a better idea. And so Lord, help us, fix our hearts, make us more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.